The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Good morning. Welcome. Glad that you are here worshiping with us today in just a moment. We'll be studying through Psalm 50, so I invite you to take your Bible and turn there. If you don't have a copy of the Scripture, uh, there's a Bible under a chair in front of you. We're on page 473 in the chair Bible. I invite you to turn and share with us. And while you're looking there at the Bible, on the back of the chair uh, is a guest card. If this is your first time or if you've never let us know that you've been joining us for worship, we'd love to know that you're here so that we could uh, make appropriate contact. We're not going to show up at your house unannounced or anything like that we just like to help you understand a little bit who we are and how to get you connected. You fill that out, drop it in the offering plate uh, at the end of our service, and that'll let us know that you are here. Standing beside me, this is Andrew Mora. Andrew literally grew up here. He grew up at Parkwood, grew up in Gastonia. Uh, sometime 12, 15 years ago in there, the Lord set him free uh, from sin and death and changed his life dramatically. He left. He's been gone about 10 years out on the West Coast. He just recently graduated from the Master's Seminary and has returned here as a pastoral apprentice for the next two years to train with us and hopefully to launch out as a pastor of a local church. So we welcome Andrew and his wife Tiffany and their two sons back to Gastonia. He's coming now to read the word for us. Psalm 50, would you stand? Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High, And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. 
These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Father, we come now to plead with you that we would look to your holy word and that we would receive what you have said. Father, I recognize that standing here before this group gathered, that preaching such a text, such a sermon, in a day such as this, is foreign to most of our ears. So Lord, I pray that you would, by the power of the Spirit, anoint the preaching and the hearing of your word, that it would be received and presented as it ought to be. This is God's word. Lord, humble us. Humble me. Do your work. Call us to repentance. Call us to trust. We plead this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Today will serve as an introduction to the next several weeks. Many of you, if you're familiar with the Bible, are likely familiar with Psalm 51. It contains the text, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. It's a psalm of repentance. Well, psalm 50 precedes it. Because the need for repentance comes from a right understanding of our sin and our right understanding of who we are before God, the righteous judge. Psalm 50 speaks of deliverance or salvation. Deliverance from sin, from the age in which we live. Deliverance from our own flesh. The following example reveals the manner in which many today who are professing to be Christians in the culture in which we live are living in such a way to say, I do as I please. The current star of the show Bachelorette, recently in a controversy based on what events that took place on the show, said to Entertainment Tonight, quote, regardless of anything that I've done, well, what people think, that I deserve a scarlet letter, that's not how it works. I can do whatever. I sin daily and Jesus still loves me. It's all washed, and if the Lord doesn't judge me and it's all forgiven, then no other man or woman can judge me. She added, the only distinction between religion and a personal relationship with Jesus is do not judge others. So I have a question for you today in light of Psalm 50 and in light of the world we live in and this particular quotation Did Christ Jesus die so that people could live as they want to as long as they ask for forgiveness? Brothers and sisters, we live in a dangerous religious world. There is a form of Christianity that surrounds us in the Bible Belt, but it is a form. And this text speaks directly to it. Here's the main idea of Psalm 50 in this sermon. 
that God the righteous judge graciously commands us to call on him for deliverance. Though the deliverance in Psalm 50 is not exact, we don't know exactly what the psalmist Asaph is being delivered from. Our application coming into Psalm 51 will be deliverance from a difficult, sinful world. That's what we need to be delivered from today. Deliverance from our flesh. As I said, it's a psalm of Asaph. He wrote 12 of the psalms. This is the first one we've come to. Psalm 49, which is just prior, if it was somewhere else in the Bible, it would likely be a proverb. It's a sermon. Psalm 50 is also a sermon, but it wouldn't be a proverb. It would likely be a minor prophet. This is a prophetic book. It begins that the righteous judge speaks and summons his people. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. And the very first words are three distinct names of God. El, or mighty one, or the creator God. Elohim, the one true God. Yahweh, the redeemer, the covenant-keeping God. What he's saying is, I am Lord of all. I speak and summon all the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. He's the creator and ruler of the sun. And he comes speaking with courtroom language. I summon the earth. Not summoned to testify. We are summoned to listen. The whole earth has been summoned to listen to God. Hear this very carefully. Speak to his people. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Out of Zion is a reference to Jerusalem, to God's people. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. So as as God comes, we know this from Hebrews 12 also, that God is a devouring or a consuming fire. He consumes everything in his presence. And for those who think once he's passed by, if you will, that you've avoided his presence, don't miss that around him, what swirls around him on all sides is a mighty tempest. In other words, in the presence of God, there is not a safety zone. He calls the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Here's what God's going to do. Psalm 50 speaks to this. There are multiple other places in the Bible that God will discern between nominal people and his real people in an open court with all of the universe looking on. He says, Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. These are the people who have agreed that he is the redeemer covenant-keeping God and have agreed that they enter into that covenant with him by making a sacrifice. Now, we don't make sacrifices today because the once-for-all sacrifice Jesus Christ has been made, but we do give a sign of the covenant between us and God. It just happened a few minutes ago. As a new brother in Christ went to the waters of baptism and professed his faith, he publicly said, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. So he says, gather the people who publicly are professing their mind. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah, stop. 
Psalm 75, verse 7, it says, It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. James Montgomery Boyce said, It is hard to imagine anything more solemn than the opening of this summons to God's court. He's the ruler of this court. He is the mighty God, the one true God. He is the covenant-keeping God. His judgment is universal. He calls the whole earth for his impending judgment. And there is this particular focus on his people. So what is it that God has to say to his people? The righteous judge graciously rebukes and commands his people to call on him for deliverance. Hear, O my people, and I will speak to you, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Now, I knew when I stood up here this morning that I had an uphill battle with many of you. And here's one of the challenges that could be in your mind right now. You know, I'm just not for this brand of Christianity. He's preaching that Old Testament judgment. I'm a New Testament Christian. I'm down with, I'm not down with all that Old Testament judgment. Okay, then let's go to the New Testament. And let's ask the question, does God speak this way in the New Testament? 1 Peter 4.17 For it is time for judgment to begin, where? At the household of God. God's judgment begins with his people. In the book of Revelation, he speaks to the seven churches. In Revelation 3, he speaks to the church at Laodicea, and he says, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Were you either cold or hot? So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you or spit you out of my mouth. I don't know, I, multiple times I've preached on Revelation 3 as a pastor and youth pastor, and before I've done it, I've passed out a thermometer, and I said, living for Jesus, not living for Jesus, in the thermometer, and fill in where you are. 90% of the audience, every time I've ever done it, will put themselves in the middle. It's always very convicting as people start crumpling up their paper and sticking it in their pocket. This is the people God's speaking to, the, the lukewarm, the nominal. He says, not for sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. So God's saying, I'm not rebuking you today because you showed up to worship. I'm not rebuking you because you brought your tithe. I've got a deeper issue with you. The issue has to do with what's in you. It's your heart, it's your attitude. The first attitude he deals with is this idea that you're doing something for God. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God's being emphatic. Did you get it? He told you three times. It's all mine. So quit acting like it's yours. Now, I might slip up and do this, but one thing you likely won't hear me say is this is my church. This is not my church. It's not yours either. Christ purchased it with his own blood. It's his. 
The house I live in is not mine. The car I drive is not mine. The money in my pocket is not mine. You say, well, you don't know what's in my pocket. God's just saying to you, excuse me, it's mine. So quit acting like you're helping me out. Quit acting like you're doing something to improve me. And then I love the sarcasm here. If I were hungry, I would not tell you why. Because God is self-sufficient. He is self-sustaining. He does not need anything from us. Now, brothers and sisters, if you begin to go down a path that you think you're doing God a favor when you worship God or when you give something, or when you serve, if you start down that path, you're quickly moving to false religion of works righteousness. That God approves of you because of what you do. God needs nothing from us. He presses it deeper, though. Because when we do works righteousness, pride and duty is what drives us. But what should drive us is humility and thanksgiving. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of the trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. There's three commands. First one, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Hebrews 13 picks this up. Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, that is Christ, through him then let us continually... Not just on Sunday, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. That is, that's what a sacrifice of praise looks like, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So with gratitude, we offer to God sacrifices of praise through Christ alone. We don't come and say, God, look at what I've done. As if we're giving something to God that he needs. The cross of Christ, the ultimate sacrifice of what he has accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection, reveals our inefficiency. That we have complete and utter dependence on the Lord God for salvation. When we look to him in utter and complete dependence on salvation, our only response is faith and gratitude. That we trust him. And we are grateful to him. Perform your vows, he says. Brothers and sisters, obedience is an act of gratitude. Obedience is not a means to gain from God. It is a response to God who has set us free through Christ. Now I'm going to agree with you on something. Obeying God in the world we live in is difficult. hard. There are challenges at every corner. So what do we do? We bail and give in and act like the culture? Depend on our own strength to press through it? What do we do? Don't miss the third command. Call upon me in the day of trouble. We are the ones in need 
We are the ones living in a day of trouble. And for many of our brothers and sisters in Christ and other places in the world, they are being persecuted physically and financially for the sake of living for Christ. Persecution in our culture is more under the table. It's more subtle, but we fear it. We fear it so much we've become silent. Not only do we fear persecution, there is this temptation, this constant temptation to abandon Christ for the allurement of the world, to pursue the desires of our flesh and to go after what we want. Now, how do I know that I do this? How do I know that you do this? Or let me say it this way. How do I know that we do this? It's simply the lack of prayer. God's people are seldom praying. Those who profess to know him in the world we live in, one of the last things they do is pray. He says, call on me in the day of trouble. We just don't think we need to be delivered. Or we think there's a way out. There seems to be no urgency among us. Or we're just joining in with others and say, with the bachelorette, that's how it works. I can do whatever I want to do. I'll pray. Oh yeah, I'll pray. Jesus, forgive me. Are you trusting his promises? Are you trusting that he says, I will deliver you and you shall glorify me? How would you describe your own attitude toward this? How would you describe the way that you're living your life? Now, this causes us to pay particular attention to the rest of this psalm as we seek to answer that question. And that is that the righteous judge graciously rebukes and charges the wicked. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? Can I take a sidebar for just one second from the sermon and say a few things about what's about to happen? As a new round of presidential debates hit us, And as a a new election cycle, which will dominate everything for the next 15 to 20 months or so, I want to call on you as Christians to wake from your stupor. Every politician who wants the evangelical vote will quote the Bible. They will promise you things. You better wake up to the misuse of God to win you. And you better pray for discernment. And wisdom. And while I'm on this subject, this must not divide our church again. The tension at Parkwood in the last political cycle was difficult for me as pastor and to watch what you did with each other. We must not reflect the world. Our world is extremely divided over politics, and we must not drive that into the church and divide each other. Thank you. At least one person agrees. We must look to Christ. No politician is our deliverer. And you hear me. Here's what scares me about modern politicians. They're all talking like they're saviors. All of them. 
We only have one Savior. He is Christ the Lord. Back to the sermon. To the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take your covenant on my lips? Now here's who God's talking to in this passage. We Bible Belt people pull the pen on our hand grenades and launch it out there in the world at those wicked people. Wow. God's got a different definition for wicked in this text. God's definition of wicked are those who gather with God's people who quote the Bible and live the contrary to it. These are scary people. These are people who have convinced themselves of something. I'm a Christian. The covenant is on their lips. You see, they're nominally orthodox. They're not too religious. They attend worship. And quote the Bible when it fits their agenda. But deep down, deep down, they hate discipline. Verse 17. You hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. I'm not saying this is a good sermon in in this stretch. But if you right now are sitting here completely angry that I would talk about judgment, or say the kind of things I've said in the last 15 or 20 minutes, you may be the person in verse 17. Now, you may not like me and my voice and my ugly red hair, and that may be what's bothering you. But if it's God's word that's bothering you, you've got a deeper issue than me. We all know this. This sermon gets out publicly. I would, I would get absolutely lit up in the press. That I would have the audacity to say some of the things I'm saying today. We live in a culture that hates discipline. We live in a culture that's taking God's word and casting it aside. How do you cast God's word behind you? Well, first, you directly disobey God. God says to do something, you do the opposite. Or you cast his word behind you when you give consent to others to do the very things God said not to do. It's very interesting in verses 18 through 20. He's dealing with three of the commandments. 7, 8, and 9. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Do not bear false witness. It's very interesting how this fits today. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him. Now, we're not talking necessarily that, you know, you're at belts and somebody sticks something in their pocketbook and walks out and you go, good job. But think of how many of you this week worked about 25 hours and got paid for 40. How many of you in this room have cheated on your taxes in the last couple of years? How many of you have gone to sell something and knew something was wrong with the car you were selling, but you sold it anyway? Then we brag about it. Got 5000 for that car. Engine's about to blow. 
You see a thief, you're pleased with him. It's all about the money, isn't it? That's what it's all about. Money. You keep company with adulterers. Don't you judge them now. I've been asking this question. I'm going to press it harder. We're about to go to Psalm 51. I'm going to press this harder. How is it in the modern church that we're turning our blind eye to the 25 years old and under among us who commit sexual sin and act like it's just normal? I'll say this more in the next few weeks. There are likely multiple adulterers sitting in this room right now. We are inflamed sexually. God is not turning a deaf ear. You give your mouth free reign for evil, your tongue frames deceit, you sit and speak against your brother, you slander your own mother's son. It's heartbreaking to see how people talk about each other, but it has absolutely broken me down to watch how God's people talk about each other. The week of the Southern Baptist Convention, I had to stop Twitter. I I couldn't look. As I was watching pastors defame each other. We've become way too free with what we say. Somehow we think social media gives us permission to do something that we wouldn't do personally. These things you have done, God says, and I have been silent, and you thought I was one like yourself. In other words, here's the assumption. The assumption is because God had not directly spoken to it, God either was like them, in other words, he did the same things, or God's indifferent Can I I just say to you now that we have the whole counsel of God? God has spoken. He hadn't stuttered. He's spoken. He's spoken clear and emphatic into the way of salvation and to how his people live. And as a result of that, he says, now... I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Judgment has come. The judge speaks. Psalm 90, verse 7. For you are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. God's going to bring it all to bear. All of it. Mark this then, you who forget God lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. I don't know if you hear it here, but there is grace here. He doesn't say, mark this then, I'm going to tear you apart right now. He says, mark this you who forgot God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. And lest there come the day like a lion, I descend on you and rip you apart. And there be no opportunity for deliverance. The grace of God is manifested in his patience. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. In God's kindness, you're sitting here today hearing this. This is God's kindness to you. That's been my prayer for you. 
My prayer is not to beat you down today. My prayer for you is to hear the covenant-keeping mighty God cry out to you, Hear me! You have forgotten me. Turn from your sin. Because here's the promise. The righteous judge graciously delivers those who are trusting him with the way and offering thanksgiving. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice, verse 23, glorifies me. To the one who orders, to one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. And I have a question. Why would you offer thanksgiving as a sacrifice? Why order your way rightly? Because God said to. Verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. In other words, order your way rightly. And call upon him in the, in the day of salvation. In the day of trouble, I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. God's saying, when you do this, I will show the salvation of God. I will show the deliverance of God. Too many of us, when we hear the word salvation from the Bible, we think about this moment and there must be a moment when we see our sin and we repent of our sin and we trust in what Christ has accomplished on the cross for our behalf and through the power of the resurrection. We must believe in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. We miss the fact that God is doing the work of sanctification, that God is doing the work of deliverance in our life, that he shows his people again and again salvation. It's not that he resaves you, it's that he's delivering you. He's delivering you from the law of sin and death. And when God delivers, it results in thanksgiving, resulting in the glory of God. Yes, when we gather here, we should regularly be convicted of our sin as the word is brought to bear and we should repent of our sin and cry out to God for forgiveness. But here's what ought to regularly happen. What ought to regularly happen is God's delivered people ought to gather here. And they ought to be grateful that God has saved them from their sin. And they ought to be grateful that God has set them free from the law of sin and death this week. That yet again, he's given victory into their life. That's the kind of people ought to gather. And that's the people who offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. So here's my question to you. Am I calling on the Lord God for deliverance and trusting him with the way? Or another way to state this, am I glorifying God? I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30, this is Moses speaking to the children of Israel just prior to their entering the promised land. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. You know what I think? I think there's a lot of you in this room, not all of you, but there are a lot of you in this room who were impacted by a godly grandmother or grandfather or a godly mother or father. Who over and over again, you heard them plead with God. Their prayer wasn't thank you for the food. It was all so much deeper than that when they prayed. At any moment, 
the word of God poured over their lips, speaking the truth. And something happened. Somewhere between in the middle of the 20th century, we became nominal. Oh, we went to church. We brought our children to church. But something has happened, brothers and sisters, and it's happened fast. More Southern Baptists, just Southern Baptists, more Southern Baptist churches are closing than we plant every year. Why? Because people in those churches are choosing death. They're choosing a man-centered religion. They're choosing to do it the way they want to do it. They're rejecting the teaching of the Bible. And their children are saying, no more. I have nothing to do with that. God says, I have placed before you blessing and curse, life and death. Choose life that you and your offspring may live. What does living look like? Loving the Lord your God. Obeying his voice. Holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers. You say, well, we're not the children of Israel. That doesn't apply to us. Listen to what Jesus said. The thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Brothers and sisters, Jesus did save us to give us eternal life. Amen? But he, gave us, he died to give us life now. Now. We can choose life now. You say, I love this when people say this. You don't live in the real world. Okay, where do I live? I deal with you every day. I know what the real world's like. And I say to you, brothers and sisters, as I say to myself and to my children, choose life. Bring a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Obey him. And when it gets difficult, if it is difficult, cry to him. Here's what he does. He delivers. He delivers. You're about to sing that this ever almighty God saves. He saves. He delivers. May it be the testimony of your heart. Let's pray. Oh God, your, your word is truth. Sometimes it's hard for us to hear, but thank you by your grace you give us the hard things when we need them. Lord, as one of the pastors here of this local flock called Parkwood, I plead for the men and women in this room. I plead for those, God, who are on the pathway of sin and destruction, who are believing their own way, who are prayerless, 
We're living a form of religion but denying the power. Oh God, bring them to repentance. Deliver them. For those of us, Lord, who are tempted to to think we got it all together today and we're not like those people, oh God, forgive us for such arrogance. I am not special. We are not special. It is only by your grace that we are saved and only by your grace that we live is unto you. Christ, you came to give us life. Life is from you. It is abundant. It is eternal. It is now and forever. You are ever almighty. We are not. We come to lay ourselves before you now. Speak, we pray, and we pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.